Well, if you'd open up your Bibles uh, back to uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 15. I'm going to try to get myself settled in here. I've titled my uh, passage today, Faith in the Dark, because dark days are just a reality of life. We live in a broken world, and and we're exiles in this world as Christians. It's not our home, and therefore, dark times and struggles will, will come. They are part of life, but these, these dark times, these struggles in life are opportunities for our faith for our faith to be revealed and for our faith to be strengthened and grow. And I think that's how this passage today operates. Our passage opens with a very dark day for David. Look at the first verses again. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David is being dethroned and exiled, being rejected by his own people. Now in one sense... Uh, This is all very much his own doing because 10 years prior when he sinned with Bathsheba and committed murder, God predicted this and and even promised it. In chapter 12, when Nathan came to him, he said these, these very words, chapter 12, verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house and I will take and and out of your house. We'll stop there. Here we see in this passage this coming to fruition. Despite David's repentance and restoration before God, Absalom, his oldest son, has turned Israel against him. We saw that last week. He was quite the politician. He won the hearts of Israel. And now he's put on his coup and he's chasing David out with the sword and taking his throne. And it's not just a tragic moment for David. It's a tragic, dark moment for all of Israel. The king chosen by God to be their savior, the anointed one. The one who conquered their enemies and brought peace. The one who had oversaw justice and equity for many years. The one through whom God had promised to bring his forever kingdom is exiting and fleeing the city in shame and sorrow. It's a very dark day. God's promises seem lost. What's going to happen? 
And the whole scene, all the way through to chapter 16, verse 14, is pictured as this journey, this trail of tears for David and his men as they head into exile. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read a bit of it so we can get a feel for the scene. And I want us to notice a very repeated phrase in the text. So let me read a bit. We'll start at verse 17. It says, And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him. And all the Cherethites, and the Pelites, and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Let's skip down to verse 22. And David said to Ittai, Go and pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the Kidron Brook, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came up also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. So we see that David leads this contingent of followers, of faithful followers, to the edge of the city, to the very last house. And at that point, his priests come and set down the ark of God. And all his people come and do what? What does the text say over and over again? Repeated phrase, they, they pass by or pass on past it. It could be translated, in some texts it is, they cross over. Does that, does that remind you of anything in the scriptures? If you're here for the Joshua series, it might remind you of chapters 3 and 4, where that phrase comes up 24 times. It's when the priests set the ark, or bring the ark to the edge of the river, and the river opens, and it says all the people pass by. They pass over. They cross over. Over and over and over again. As they enter into the promised land of blessing, they pass over. You see, what's happening here is this reversal moment. An exodus out of the place of blessing and promise. And it's really captain at the end of verse 23 where it talks about them going over the brook of Kidron and the people passed on towards the wilderness. They're passing back into the wilderness. It's a dark and tragic scene. And it clearly means that suffering for David and his servants is before them. And kind of leaves the promise of God hanging in the air. Will he ever bring his great king and his forever kingdom? But what we also need to notice is how this passage looks forward. It looks back in this kind of reversal, but it looks forward as well. Because as David exits with his people, look at, look at where he goes, look at where he's heading. Look at verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators with Absalom. David, rejected by his own people, leaves Jerusalem, crosses the Kidron Valley, 
and begins an ascent up the Mount of Olives where he is betrayed along the way. Does that remind you of anything? It's Jesus' exact path to the cross. Centuries later, Jesus will walk these exact steps of rejection and shame and scandal and darkness and betrayal. But not because of his sin, but ours. He will endure a dark day of humiliation and suffering, but ultimately it will be a day of salvation where God's promise of his forever king is finally fulfilled as Jesus conquers sin and death and rises to his throne. So, so in the big picture, when we look at this story, when we look at this text, we can rejoice. As we look back through the cross, our faith can be built up through this dark day because we can see that our God is faithful to his promises even through the worst of times, even those of our own making. We, we need to look at this and be bolstered and encouraged when things look bleak, when suffering comes. And suffering will come for us. That's why I had that passage from Romans 8:17 read, right? That we're heirs with Christ in suffering and in his glory. We follow in the way of the cross. But what I really want us to see this morning is that this passage doesn't just bolster our faith in the big picture as we look back at it through the cross, but in the small picture, in the details of how David responds in faith here, our faith can be bolstered. In the details, there's a lot for us to glean about the life of faith. It's interesting, David has been pretty weak the past so many weeks. Ever since he sinned with Bathsheba, he's been struggling spiritually. He's not been able to stand up for injustice or stand up to the evil of his sons, take any action. But in this dark moment, as he's heading into exile, it's kind of like he kind of hits bottom and his faith seems to come alive. And I want us to notice three things about his faith in this dark moment. And the first thing I want us to know is how free it is. We see this, this freedom in David's faith here. This freedom to kind of give over control, to, of trying to be in control, I should say, and just rest in God and his sovereignty and his grace. I think this is clearly demonstrated in verse 24 and 25 when he's interacting with the priests over the ark. As we noted, Abiathar and Zadok have brought the ark along with them and set it at the edge of the city as, the, as, as those loyal to David pass by out of the city. Now we'd expect when they all pass by that the priests would take the poles and lift up that ark and that they would head out and probably pass before the people and lead them out in procession. This is the, this is the Old Testament pattern of how the people of God would travel with the ark kind of representing his presence before them. It, it seemed to be a way of them kind of harnessing his power and his protection, especially if they were to face enemies. At least often, that's often how they used it. All you have to do is look back at 1 Samuel 4.3 when they go into battle and they lose the first time, so then they go back and get the ark to bring before them. 
But David does an interesting thing here. In verse 25, this is what, look what he says. Then the king said to Zadok, after they've all passed by it out of the city, he says to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. He tells them to, to take the ark back. He knows that the ark belongs in Jerusalem at the center of God's kingdom. And he won't try to take it as a, as a means of control, as a way of trying to incur God's blessing or manipulate. As hard as this, this circumstance is, he sees that God is sovereign in it, that he's predicted it, and is allowing it, even if it's hard to understand why. So he's just going to trust God. It all depends on God's favor, on his grace. And he knows God's promises, and he knows God is good. So whatever God decides, he's just going to submit and rest in it. As Dale Ralph Davies put it, David says, His restoration, should there be such, does not depend on whether he has Yahweh's furniture, but on whether he has Yahweh's favor. All rests on grace. And do you see how freeing that is for David? He isn't wearing the weight of the circumstances on his shoulders. He isn't saying, I, I must fix it. So I'll use every means to manipulate God's plan. I'll use the ark as kind of a, a talisman to sort of charm God. I'll, I'll make sacrifices and prayers until he listens to me. That's not what he's doing. No, he just says, send it back. Let him do to me what seems good to him. It reminds me of when he got up off the ground after his son's death, having accepted God's will. Not in resignation, but in hope. I can't bring him back, he said, but I will go to him. His faith has this, this, this freedom to just rest in God's sovereign grace, and it's beautiful. This is the kind of faith that, that we need in times that seem dark and overwhelming. It's the kind of faith that can be forged in those times. It's the kind of faith that was forged in the disciples as they experienced Jesus' death and then his resurrection. It's that same faith that sustained them through persecution in the early church and ultimately their martyrdoms. And it's a faith that this passage should help build in us as, as we look at it this side of the cross. God does keep his promises to David in the most incredible way, in ways that David couldn't even imagine. This moment will have a fulfillment for salvation of God's people beyond his dreams. He can't see it, but he, but he trusted anyways, and we can see it, and it should free us to rest and to trust all the more. Now, I want to say at this point that um, some people might think that this kind of faith in, in God's sovereignty, kind of freely just resting in what he has, can, it can kind of lead to a, a do-nothing life, kind of a spiritual laziness. You know, what's going to happen, what God's going to do, he's going to do, so just let go and let God. 
But I think that what we see here is, is that it actually brings in David another kind of freedom. A freedom to actually boldly take action. To really, to really go for it. Look at verse 27. He doesn't just sit around, does he? He doesn't just say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. So I'm just going to hang out. Look at verse 27. Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the words comes from you to inform me. He gets right to work to foil Absalom's plot. He starts stealthily placing informants. And in verse 22, 32 and following, he actually develops this little spying scheme by recruiting Hushai the Archite to, to work with his two embedded spies to set up this intel kind of scheme to bring all the information back to him. We see this in the conclusion of verse 35 and verse 36. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them. Ahimaaz and Zadok, son, Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. You see, he isn't stifled by faith in God's sovereignty. He is released, set free to take bold action for his kingdom. My friends, it's empowering to know that God has got it, isn't it? To trust that he's... He's going to keep his promises to trust that he's going to work out his plan of salvation. You see, if we don't believe this, then it's, then it's all on me to work it out and get it done. So I must be constantly trying to manipulate things and people and circumstances and even God. That's stifling. That's paralyzing. I mean, what if I make the wrong move and, and mess it all up? I'm going to mess up this church. I'm going to mess up my kids and family. I'm going to screw up God's whole plan of salvation. Everybody's going to go to hell because of me. You start thinking this way, and you will do nothing. You will get frozen in anxiety. God's sovereignty is so freeing. And let me tell you, I think this is a real lesson for senior pastors. I've been at this church for 22 years, seven as, a, as the youth pastor, lots of fun, hard work, but anxiety-wise, not a real problem. I slept great. Pretty worn out, so slept great. Five years as an associate pastor, different responsibilities, doing a lot of the administrative, administrative stuff that the senior pastor doesn't want to do, thinking his job is way easier. All he does is preach, but no worries because it's all buck stopped with him, slept real well. And then finally, senior pastor. I've done it. I've got control. I can do things my way. And then it hits. The weight. It's all on me. People are looking to me. Oh, no. What if I mess it up? 
have you seen the budget? Anxiety, everything. Start not sleeping well. I remember saying to Paul Reese, he was the former pastor, I said, look, I used to know what you did. I thought, no problem, I can do that. But now I feel what you felt. My wife will tell you, I didn't sleep well for the first year. And the natural response is, is not to trust God, but to wear everything and to try to fix it and try to manipulate things. And it gets overwhelming and you can freeze up. The wife of uh, the senior pastor that my dad trained under loves to tell the story how once she woke up and her husband, the pastor, was on the bed and he was on his hands and knees and he was like, had his arms like this. And she didn't know, she said, what are you doing? His name was Verl. She said, Verl, what are you doing? And he said, shh. She said, what are you doing? He said, shh. Holding a pyramid of marbles. If I move, it's all going to fall down. He was dreaming, obviously. Sleep, dreaming. Sleep, holding up the pyramid of marbles. That's how he felt. That was the pastor. You see, that's, when you're like that, which I can be, it's a lack of faith. It's really not trusting in the sovereignty of God in such a way that you're free to go for it, knowing he's in control. So you do your best. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get to work using all the creativity and resources that God has given us like David did, informed by the word of God and his counsel, and we can go after it when we trust in the sovereignty of God. took me a while to figure it out, to freely rest in his sovereign grace and control, and now I'm screwing things up left and right. But God has has got it, and I'm sleeping well at night, except when I'm falling back into not trusting him. It's an ongoing struggle. How are you doing with this kind of faith? With that balance of trusting God even in the dark, not trying to delusionally take control, and yet going for it in his kingdom work, knowing he's got it. David's faith here as it's forged and revealed in the darkest of times in his life is free to rest and free to take action in the Lord. But there's one more thing I want us to see about his faith here, and that is his faith is rewarded with fellowship. What we can't miss as we move through this chapter is how David, in the darkest moment of exile, as he steps out in faith, giving himself over to God's will, has people coming out of the woodwork to join him. First of all, we see all the servants in in verse 18, right? Let me read that again. Verse 18, And the servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Here we have the Cherethites, and the Pelethites and the Gittites, all of whom, by the way, are foreigners. God's king is being rejected by his own people, and God brings the nations to be with him. Sound familiar? And then the text focuses then on one specific foreigner, Ittai the Gittite. Verse 19. He is a guy who unfortunately landed the job on David's staff, so to speak, one day before the coup. 
So as David is standing at the edge of the city and all loyal to him are passing by, when he sees Ittai, he says, Ittai, hold on. You don't have to come with me. You just started yesterday. And you're a foreigner. An exile from your land already. You don't have to become a double exile by following me into the wilderness. Go back. Stay with the new king. It's, it's all good. It's okay. He gives him a complete path, a pass, a, a get-out-of-exile card. Think about that if you're Ittai. What would you do? He barely knows David. Yet look at his response in verse 21. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord lives, the, ki- the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also, also your servant will be. He says to David, You are my Lord, you are my master, In life or death, I am with you as your servant. It's incredible. I mean, in this kind of sea of of treachery led by David's own son, this Gittite, a Philistine, by the way, is with David to the end. And if you're wondering if this could possibly be a little bit of macho bluster by him, you know, I'll be with you to the end, and you're not sure he really means, look at verse 22. And David said to Ittai, go, then pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. That's his children. He's bringing his kids into exile with David. When you're bringing your kids, you're in. And then there's Hushai, the archite, verse 32. He too seems to come out of nowhere to give his complete loyalty to David. He even agrees to go back in and risk his life to work as a spy for him. And did you notice how he is in direct, he is a direct answer to David's prayer in verse 31. Right? David has just been told as he ascended the Mount of Olives weeping that his close friend, his wisest counselor, Ahithophel, has betrayed him. And he's gone over to be a counsel, counselor for Absalom. I mean, this is really bad. This is his wisest counsel by far, and he knows David inside and out. It's a personal assault. It's a strategic disaster. Things couldn't get much worse. So David cries out when he hears it in verse 31. He just can't help it. He cries out, Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's his prayer. Please turn the counsel of Ithahel into foolishness. And the very next verse, Hushai shows up. It's not a coincidence. It's a direct, immediate answer to David's cry. All you have to do is read on in chapter 17, and you find out that Hushai will defeat the counsel of Ahithophel and save David. He'll do exactly that. God is rewarding David's faithfulness in his darkest moment with faithful friends, with real fellowship, partners in God's kingdom work. Reminds me of Paul's letter to the Philippians church where where he says 
that he remembers them with joy and has them in his heart because they are partners with him in the gospel. And he knows it's right for him to feel this way, he says, because they are partakers of God's grace with him, both in his imprisonment and his darkest moments and in his proclamation of the gospel. Through it all, the good and the bad, they are with him. So he holds them in his heart and they strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. David's faith is rewarded with faithful friends. And I think we're supposed to ask whether we have friends like this. Where your friendship was kind of forged in the darkness. God brought that person in in your struggling time. And now they are friends for life. Friends that are partners in the gospel. God has gotten a hold of their life. And he's gotten a hold of yours. And he's brought you into each other's lives now for his kingdom work. Can you put a name to that friend? Maybe you got him pictured in your head. But friends, that's what this church is about. Forging true friendship for God's kingdom work. Friendships that are the reward of faith. Faith that rests in God. Faith that takes action for him in the darkest times. When we really do it, when we really act in this way, God brings partners to walk with us. Because we follow one who has walked the path of exile before us and blazed the trail of salvation for us. He brings partners for us to walk with. These are some of the lessons that we see from David's faith in dark moments. And I think we're supposed to be encouraged by them and understand that they ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fellowship of faith that we have in your Son. Help us to rest Help us to act boldly as your people for the gospel. Thy kingdom come, Father. Amen.